Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's official. The Canadian evacuation efforts out of Afghanistan have ended. The final flight left earlier this morning. But just yesterday, the Prime Minister said that Canada was prepared to keep its military groups in Afghanistan past the August 31st deadline. Just what happened to change that one? We'll get into that. And after a summer of record high heat waves and forest fires, many Canadians agree that something needs to be done about climate change. But should that action come at the cost of the country's economy? And how do you sift through all the campaign promises and find out what's fact and what's fiction? Well, Catherine Scott, senior researcher for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It is now official that uh, military officials say Canadian personnel have uh, left Afghanistan as of uh, just a few hours ago. Here is uh, the uh, general now, Wayne Eyre, who is, of course, uh, in charge of this whole operation, says the last C-17 flight left at about 1 a.m. Eastern time. A small contingent remains on the ground to uh, support and coordinate our air bridge uh, for the retrograde of Allied forces while conditions permit. Well, let's talk about those conditions and, and what they've left behind in the, in this uh well, some people say a uh, rather protracted uh, effort to try to get as many people out of there as we can. Joining us to talk about this is Stephen Chase. Stephen is the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Stephen, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. A great piece in the, in the Globe today that I think outlines exactly what Canada is doing and what they were trying to do. Uh, and, of course, it's all over now. Maybe you could explain, because I'm getting a lot of questions about this, the, the contradictory message it was just a couple of days ago that the Prime Minister said that uh, it looked as if they were willing to stay past the October 31st deadline. And m- mere moments later, it seemed, I guess it was an hour or two in, in actual time, uh, there was a reversal of that and said, okay, we're getting out and they're gone now. Yeah, and Mr. Trudeau's comments didn't even make sense at the time. We're not really sure why he said that. It was pretty clear by that time that uh, the Taliban was enforcing the deadline and uh, we, we would not be able to stay because, of course, uh, uh, there's only one country in the world that can project force halfway across the world, and that's the United States. And once they leave, uh, the these smaller countries like Canada cannot hold the fort. The indication we got uh, is that uh, this was done at the behest of the United States our government themselves and the Army, wasn't it, Stephen? They simply said, look, we, we're sticking to our deadline. We need you out of the way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, they, the United States has to wrap up and withdraw its forces. Um, and its machinery and its equipment, and they had said to the allies, uh, "We need to have you out by today." So, and and that's just to understand the enormity of an exercise. It's not just a few duffel bags that are going to roll under the plane. I mean, they've had a presence there for quite some time, and I would imagine it's it's going to take a few days, uh, you know, for them to get everything out of there and still ma- maintain that August thirty first deadline. That's correct. It's a huge logistical exercise, and uh, they needed the other allies out of the way before they completed that. Stephen, let's talk a little bit about the success or failure of the mission itself and, and Canada's role in that. Uh, you know, we've been talking for quite some time, and you've been writing for quite some time, about uh, the, the movement to try to get those that had helped the Canadian, well, the Allied troops uh, during the 20-year-plus battle that was going on in Afghanistan right now. Uh, we know some of the numbers uh, of, of the people that have been extracted and, and have been relocated. Uh, would you call this a successful mission? Boy, I'd say it's a mess. Um the, and it's, it's very hard to get clear numbers from the Canadian government, which operates under far more secrecy than other governments and other Western Allied governments. For instance, they would never even tell us how many troops they had in the ground, whereas we could find out the Americans had 5,800 and the British had 1,000 and so on. So the government's giving us numbers, but they're not a very uh, useful, um, satisfactory. They say that they had 
8,000 applications to be airlifted out, and they say that they airlifted out 3,700, but they, that's not, those people did not all go to Canada. We're, it's not really clear how many we are receiving. Um, for instance, uh, we only have about 900 people who have arrived here so far. As you might uh, be aware that um, people are flown to a third country first where their identities are checked, biometrics and so on, and then they're flown to Canada. We've only got about 900. The government says they airlifted out 3,700, but they acknowledge um, not all these people are headed to Canada because the Allies were pulling flights. So uh, we left a lot of people behind, and this all sort of should have started a lot earlier. I think it's worth pointing out that um, our embassy left at the outset, so there was not the kind of diplomatic or logistical uh, diplomatic presence on the ground that we normally have to uh, to execute this. Uh, our, our ambassador and the bulk of the uh, of our mission was gone by the time Kabul fell. As, as we watched uh, the reporting on this, uh, on, on, of course, on television, and you're reporting in the Globe and Mail. I, I was expecting, I mean, there was an urgency to this, at least I thought there was anyway, by all the Allied forces, not just the Canadians, but the UK and, and the other countries that were taking part in this, and the Americans as well. Uh, and you would think, okay, there's got to be some sense of coordination here. I don't know that that ever happened there, did it? It just seemed as if some, they, I, I don't know, people bumping into each other. They seem to be working across purposes sometimes. I, I, I'm not sure that. I think that they quickly... In the last week, obviously, we have to talk about before August 15th when Kabul fell to the Taliban and after August 15th. Yeah. After August 15th, they formed an air bridge. They pulled flights. They just took out, each ally took out whoever was available at the time. And often, in our case, it was the U.S. or U.K. that was taking out uh, our people that might have been destined for Canada. So I thought that worked pretty well. The real problem was um, this horrible prospect of Canada telling it, uh, the, the applicants, you have to make your way to the airport, good luck. And uh, we have stories, horrible, heart-wrenching stories. Of I was talking to one family in particular yesterday that just happened to be the last people I talked to. They tried five times, couldn't find Canadians. Finally, they found a Canadian soldier, and the Canadian soldier said we're only taking Canadian passport holders, not people who've got uh, you know, refugee immigration uh, uh, approvals and so on. So uh, they're asking people to make it through, run the gauntlet of the Taliban to get to the airport, and then find Canadian soldiers, that did not work very well. Stephen, maybe you let our listeners know, how accessible is, is the airport at Kabul? I mean, because it wasn't just people from that city that wanted to get out of here. I mean, people from all over the country were, I guess, trying to congregate there because they knew that was the exit point for them. Uh, now, I know, I, I think in some of the reporting you did last week, uh, from Kandahar to, to Kabul, I think it's just one highway. I mean, there's one road there, uh, which, of course, was being controlled by the Taliban. Was it that much more difficult for people from other parts of the country as well? Yeah, absolutely. As, as I guess, as you are well aware, this, the Taliban set up a, quite a network of checkpoints, and they basically controlled movement in the city. And they were, um, and Kabul is really the only place with the infrastructure and where, where the flights are taking off. So yes, you had people thronging the airport, uh, the airport perimeter, from all over the country, standing in. If they wanted to approach the soldiers, they had to stand in sewage water, a sewage canal. Uh, up to their waists uh, with their smartphones and their documents and so on. So it was just a it was it was just total chaos. And the uh, general this morning talked about uh, how that might likely haunt his soldiers. What the, what they what they saw. 
Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau acknowledged that uh, thousands of people are, have been left behind as a result of this. Uh, he's pledged uh, that Canada will honor special visas given to these Afghans and their families, provided they can escape to third countries. Uh, that's, that's cold comfort, I suppose, to those people. What are the chances of that actually happening? Well, I, I don't know. It depends on whether Pakistan, which has a lot of pull with the Taliban and is a neighboring country, uh, helps uh, plays a role. Maybe Pakistan can open up a, a land bridge, so to speak, and let people uh, get over the border and flee out of their country or other countries. So that's a possibility, and that's something we're looking to as, as things develop. But what, given the fact that the Taliban have already said that they don't want any more uh, Afghans to leave the country now, uh, yeah. you, you wonder about the possibility or even the feasibility of something like that happening. Yes, although it probably won't be occurring uh, uh, in full view of the TV cameras, and therefore will be less embarrassing to the, to the Taliban. I think one of the things they didn't like was seeing uh, this exodus of people, uh, you know, with, with the world watching. It's going to be a little bit more discreet, uh, or unless, of course, we're <laughs> Taliban are going to let U.S. and Western media set up on the uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan border. I still think that's a, a, a serious option. The Pakistan has already signaled it's interested in helping, and they have sway with the Taliban, so we'll see where that goes. Stephen, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago but uh, the, the, the decision, I guess a policy decision that was made, uh, that in the waning hours of this, uh, this uh, rescue mission, so to speak, uh, that they're only taking people with Canadian passports as opposed to those that already had authenticated papers and, and visa applications that had been okayed. W was there a, a, an announcement made about that, or was that a decision that was made on the fly? And, and was the fact that all of a sudden they, they had to get out quickly a factor in, in, in just saying, okay, only this group, not this group? I, I think that's probably the best explanation. There was no announcements, and the government ever acknowledged it. This was just a, a repeated story we heard uh, um, from people. Um, there's another fellow. Uh, uh, his first name was Basir. He doesn't want me to use his last name. He and his wife and his son went and uh, got to the, the sewage canal to the perimeter and, and presented themselves to a Canadian soldier, and they were told, sorry, we're only taking Canadian passport holders now. So, yeah, I mean, Canadian passport holders rank, uh, apparently, over um, these people, and I guess if there was limited space in the plane, then um, then that would have been the order of business. What happens now? I, I mean, the Americans are sticking to their guns and saying they're going to be out of there by the 31st. Uh, the Taliban control the country right now. The, 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 once the, the Allied forces are gone, uh, reassessment about foreign aid. I mean, there's a lot of decisions, uh, diplomatic decisions, and I guess political decisions that need to be made now, aren't there? Yeah, rethinking everything and what kind of relationship is Canada going to have with the Taliban? I mean, uh, you know, you saw Mr. Garneau hesitating on, on ruling out um, uh, the, fine, the foreign minister, uh, hesitating on ruling out, you know, uh, formal relations. But Mr. Trudeau, however, has overruled him and said that we're not going to have any, we're not going to recognize the Taliban. So that could make it difficult uh, to deal with them. And, of course, uh, any aid that's heading into Afghanistan will have to come in through Kabul. And, of course, the Taliban will get, get their hands on it and uh, take it from there. So, um, yeah, it's a complete rethink. That's always been a concern, though, hasn't it, with the aid that's gone in there, not just from Canadian uh, sources but from other sources as well, as to whether or not yeah. it actually gets to the people that really need it or for, for whom it was t intended? Yeah, absolutely.
Uh, listen, while I got you, a quick pivot here, and it's it's terrible what's going on, and we'll wait for further developments. But I also wanted to get a, a quick read on uh, a piece that that uh, you had in the Globe uh, about, uh, well, let's call it shipbuilding, shall we say, uh, yeah. uh, Marine Atlantic. And this is something that uh, the Prime Minister faced in a, in a Q&A he had, I guess, on the West Coast the other day. Uh, and it's got to do with a contract to uh, to build a ferry that's going to actually be running over in the eastern part in the maritime provinces here, uh, yeah. built essentially by a Chinese company. Explain that to our listeners. That, that's got a lot of people scratching their heads as to why this was even happening. Yeah, so Marine Atlantic provides service between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Labrador, and they needed a new ferry, 1,000-passenger ferry. So they they had a, they held a competition, and lo and behold, the, the company that won it, which actually is based in Sweden, uh, turned around and, and basically contracted out the, uh, the building of the ferry to a state-owned Chinese company, one of the largest in the world. And uh, even though the Canadian shipbuilding industry says that they could have done this, and what the heck, uh, Marine Atlantic isn't really offering any explanation as to why they turned to a Chinese state owned company, especially when the Canadian government has said it's, it's going to be changing its approach to China given its increasing belligerence and authoritarianism. And of course, the fact that they've held, uh, two of Canadians for no apparent, uh, you know, justification, that's the government's words, for uh, nearly a thousand days, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. So it's a question of do our, does our, uh, government procurement align with our values and uh, that's the question that Mr. Trudeau was being asked yesterday and is still asking is still being asked today well and as you mentioned in the piece a number of Canadian companies at least two major ones anyway are, are crying foul here and saying that this should have been built in Canada it's not just a matter of hey it shouldn't have been China that's, that's, that's step one but step two is as you say there's an industry right here which the government by the way has subsidized pretty considerably over the last number of years uh, and paid a lot of inv- investment in the shipbuilding in Quebec and in the maritime provinces right now uh, I, I guess what they need to do here is explain exactly what the pro- procurement policy is is it always just about best prices uh, uh, it, or is it, you know, to build Canadian jobs, as they keep talking about during the campaign here? Yeah, well, they, it's uh, when they talk about the National Shipbuilding uh, uh, Program, it really uh, has only really focused on military vessels and Coast Guard vessels. And had, didn't really, they never wrapped in or folded in uh, other, other vessel procurements, such as, you know, Crown Corporations that run ferry services. So uh, it, it looks like they just let Marine Atlantic on its merry way to do what it wants. Marine Atlantic, of course, even though it's a Crown Corporation, is effectively reports to the Transport Minister, uh, or through to Parliament to the Transport Minister, and the Transport Minister appoints all the uh, the board. So the government does have control over it. And, and I know that the Minister, or at least his staff, are saying, look, he didn't even sign off on this. He was just told that the deal went through, uh, didn't get all the details. But you've got to figure, Stephen, somebody in, in those offices is going to look at this and say, how's this going to look? Uh, they, they don't seem to ask that question. Apparently not. <laughs> it's just time and time again, you figure, you know, it's that old adage that, you know, when you make a policy decision or any kind of a decision like this, somebody around the table should say, okay, you know, before we get up and, and open the, the, the doors here, uh, how's this going to play? How's this going to play in Vancouver? How's this going to play in Halifax? How's this going to play everywhere else? Uh, yeah, and, you think it would be jobs for Canadians. You think they'd want to do that. It, that that's, that's puzzling. It's very puzzling. It's, uh, anyway, a, f- a very revealing piece, and I want to thank you for joining us and for uh, for the stuff that you're writing over the last couple of days. Uh, more to come on the Afghanistan file, certainly, over the next couple of days. But thank you again, Stephen, for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Take care.
you too. Stephen Chase, uh, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. Uh, with the Afghanistan situation still very fluid, the Americans will be there, we're told, right until the 31st. And uh, we'll see what's going to happen after that vis-a-vis recognizing whatever government is going to be taking place in Afghanistan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, we watch more uh, campaign promises being made today as we head towards September 20th and Election Day, what are the key issues? Well, uh, it's interesting to notice the the evolution, I guess, of, of the issue of climate change. It used to be, and not that many years ago, when it was just, yeah, those are those radical tree-hugging people, you know, that care about that. I mean, you know, we do half the stuff they want us to do. It's going to kill the economy. Well... I think we've changed our minds about that. Maybe we've evolved a little bit on that, too. But as the election continues here, uh, pollsters are keeping a pretty close eye on what are going to be the wedge issues. And it looks like climate change could actually be near the top of the heap. Uh, Global's Brittany Greensdale has the details. With wildfires raging, temperatures skyrocketing, and extreme drought conditions, Manitobans are seeing firsthand the impacts of climate change. Mary Agnes Welch from Market and Public Opinion Research Company, Probe Research, says voters often look to connect with issues that directly impact them, which could make climate change a core issue after the past year. You know, every election we sort of try to debate climate change and it's a a little bit of a sort of a, a sleeper issue and voters say they care about it, whether they traditionally voted based on that, I think is a whole other matter. This election might actually be the first time when it becomes genuinely a little bit of a ballot issue. Welch says the pandemic and economic recovery will likely be the major issues, but whether climate change platforms will sway people enough to change their votes is yet to be seen. Brittany Greenslade, Global News problem of course is that is that either or situation that so many people seem to have right now well you know is it going to be climate change or the economy because you can't have both maybe we're changing maybe we're starting to get a different perspective on this joining us to talk about this uh, conundrum uh, that hopefully is going to get worked out is uh, uh, kent moore kent is a professor in atmospheric physics at the university of toronto professor a pleasure to have you on the program thanks so much for the time today Oh, thanks. It's my pleasure. Well, we've talked a lot about the pollsters trying to get a, a read on exactly where we're feeling. And I know Ipsos and a number of other polls and companies have, have done an awful lot of this. And uh, uh, we seem to be grappling with this issue that, uh, that if we want to do what probably needs to be done for climate change, uh, we're really concerned, at least a lot of us are nearly concerned about the impact it's going to have on the economy. Are, are we starting to understand that, that it's not necessarily an either-or situation? I, I think it's I think two things are happening. First of all, I think uh, climate change is becoming more personal to everybody because, you know, when you talk about Arctic sea ice, you know, melting or Greenland glaciers melting, it's a bit abstract. But, you know, when you see the heat waves and the forest fires and things, I think it's now becoming more kind of personal that, you know, that our climate is changing and it's going to impact us. The other thing, of course, is this issue of the economy. Is it is it a zero-sum game or not? And it's true that if we do transition to a greener economy, there's going to be, I think, some transitory you know, pressures on certain sectors. But I think there's lots of opportunity, right, as we transition, you know, just green, green economy, new types of jobs. And so I think people are starting to realize that, you know, it's not an either or. We can, you know, help mitigate climate change without seriously impacting the economy in the long term. There will be dislocations, but I think in the long term, it'll be a be a, be a net gain for both the climate and for the economy. 
Is it because there's some progress has been made on this, Professor, that we can actually point to and say, see, see it's not going to be that bad? Uh, and maybe the auto industry is maybe the best example of that, at least what they're planning on doing anyway. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, if you said that, you know, everybody's going to be driving electric cars in about 12 years, they said, you're nuts. That's going to happen. No. Uh, you know, they just can't, they're not going to perform as well. But we've evolved and now we've seen that, hey, maybe that would work. And that certainly the auto manufacturers have seen that because they've made that commitment. I think it's true. I think, you know, um, you know, 15 years ago, you know, solar panels were a lot more expensive and less efficient than they are now. So costs are going down, efficiency is going up. So I think it is it is easier to make the argument now. And I think, you know, the auto industry is an excellent example how they've, they've seen the writing on the, on the wall. And frankly, I think it's partly driven by policies, you know, by the government saying that they're going to mandate, you know, a uh, transition. And so they're seeing the writing on the wall. And innovation, I mean, you know, human beings are incredibly innovative. And when there's a problem, you know, we put our minds to it, we, we can solve that problem. And I think we're, we're, we're seeing that in just the way that the efficiency of a lot of the green energy uh, modalities is becoming much, much higher now. And that's helping this transition for sure. Uh, in the polling data from uh, from Ipsos here, 77% of the people surveyed said the country needs to do more to reverse the effects of climate change, but half of them said the federal government still has to find that balance. So there's still some trepidation here, isn't there? There is, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, if you think about, you know, Canada is a resource-driven economy, uh, you know, it's a huge amount of resource extraction, especially in the West, and uh, that's really energy intensive now. I mean, the you know the oil sands are incredibly en- energy intensive, and I don't think you know we can frankly get to a point where that energy intensity goes down a lot. And there's going to be problems. And I think that's one 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 sector where I'm really you know quite concerned about the impact is that it's going to be difficult when we transition off of you know carbon based energy. Uh, there's going to be some hits in the energy sector as it stands now. And and therein lies the problem. That's why there's always going to be pushback from that. But the, the argument that we've heard from some circles anyway, though, Professor, is now we can do that. I mean, you have to pivot. That's all there is to it. And uh, and I know I you know I know there are wind farms in Alberta. It's not they're not just it's not all just fossil fuels there. But Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular are simply saying, what's going to happen to us if if you guys all of a sudden decide in 15 years that you know you're not going to use our product anymore, you're not going to use our resources. That's true. And I think it's not only us, right? I mean, I think there's clearly, you know, a, a movement internationally to reduce use of carbon. And so, you know, un- unfortunately, uh, you know, the markets for those uh, carbon intensive fuels is going to reduce over over time. So it's not only an internal domestic pressure, it's external pressure as well. And you can see that with, you know, with the pipeline, you know, kind of debacle you know, uh, Keystone and things has been kind of off and on because I think the, you know, the U.S. government sees that they need to kind of reduce, you know, fossil fuel use as well. And the Keystone is one kind of uh, poster child that they can say they're doing something, whether it really acts or not is another issue. So I think there are pressures both internally and externally. But, uh, you know, um, I was surprised to hear that, you know, there was that Alberta Bitcoin, uh, you know, uh, mine and they were using natural gas. To, to drive their, uh, you know, all their energy. And that's pretty cool use. I mean, I think, you know, people are innovative and, uh, you know, maybe we can transition to using natural gas to help, you know, with some of the energy intensity in, uh, you know, the uh, processing of the fossil, of the oil sand so that we can reduce the carbon footprint. I think we're very creative and people are working at it. I think the concern I have is the time frame. 
we don't have a lot of time, right? We have 20 years to get this under control, and it's going to take 20 years to transition the, the economy. So I think we need to really keep pressuring, you know, the politicians to really, you know, be really definitive in their plans. They can't be aspirational. They've got to really, you know, kind of plan it. You know, we've, we've dithered for a long time, and now we don't have any more time. We have to really get on this now. But the, is the political will there? It may actually be there, but is the you know the, the courage to actually do these? Because there are still climate deniers. I mean, you know it, and I certainly hear from them yep. on a pretty consistent basis. After you and I finish our conversation, I'll probably get a dozen emails about this saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Climate change has been happening for eons. Of course it does. It's just a natural evolution. Governments can't do anything about it. And that that line of thinking is out there. And uh, there's, I think, an awful lot of people, Professor, probably sitting on the fence saying, I don't know which side to believe here. But, boy, you go on the internet right now and you can find 150 different websites that'll say this is all a hoax i know and that's a, and that's a big problem and you know it's the same problem we have with vaccines right i mean there's yeah. a lot of you know this is uh you know the, there's so much information out there it's hard to filter the the reputable stuff from the stuff that isn't and it's a real it's real hard but i but i take real i mean i, I look at this poll and so you know 75 percent say they're willing to get on board with the carbon tax if they knew, you know, the money was going to go to combating climate change. And I think that's a real, you know, if I think about even five years ago, you know, that's a real change, right? And so I think people, you know, people are, and I understand that, you know, we have to make sure the, you know, the federal government just doesn't collect that money and spend it on whatever. It has to go, you know, to fighting climate change. And and so I, I think that, you know, there is the will if if the politicians can can say, look, it, we're really going to work on this. You know, we're not just going to collect this money and put it in the general coffers and let it, you know, fund whatever. We're going to target it to reducing emissions and, you know, helping economies transition, helping people, you know, transition into into newer, you know, jobs. You know, I think the 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 will is there, and so I, you know, I don't worry about the twenty five percent because there's always going to be twenty five percent of people who who don't believe it or who who just don't get on board. But when you get seventy five percent of the people saying, yeah. I'm willing to, you know, pay a carbon tax if it's going to actually help the econ- help the climate. Then I'm, you know, that that's really positive to me, and it's a change. So I think we have to take the wins where where we see them, and I think we we see that there's a, you know, change in uh, momentum. People are understanding the impact that climate is going to have on their personal lives, and they're willing to get on board with mitigating those changes. And, and I, I don't want to, maybe the right phrase is fear factor. <clears throat> As you said, it's, it's right in front of us right now. And it was too much in the abstract. I think, you know, the, the pushback against the Al Gore movie a few years ago, The Inconvenient Truth, you know, and they had the computer generated pictures of the streets of New York being flooded because the ocean levels rise. And people think, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. Uh, but when you see forest fires and you see a haze over the sun because of the, the smoke particles that are in the air, uh, that's reality. That's, that's hitting you. And it's, it's not something that's just a, a high hypothetical it's going on all around us and well the heat wave i mean we just had one here in southern ontario that, that hopefully is going to break now uh but they've had some well killer temperatures actually in out in british columbia and out in alberta over the last three or four months as well so it's it's right in front of us every time we turn on the news that say yeah that's climate change all right yeah and i think that's what's really that's i think what is driving a lot of this kind of sea change is just people now really see it right and it, the abstract stuff that you know was in the uh, al gore movie and even just talk as I'm talking about glaciers melting or whatever, well, that's really far away, right? But when you when you see, like I landed in Toronto uh, about a month ago and during one of these forest fire outbreaks, and it was eerie how cloudy and smoky, you know, Toronto was. We don't normally see that in Toronto, right? And that really hits, that, that hits home to people that, yeah, even if it's forest fires in northern Ontario or, or the west, 
that air can move pretty quickly and impact us in southern Ontario. So I think people are getting the, you know, now seeing it. And, uh, you know, if you if you live on the ocean and you're seeing erosion happening on your beach or whatever, then again, that's really, a, I think, a concrete impact of climate change. And I think people understand that we have to do something about it. So I think it's becoming personal. And that's, I think, a positive thing because I hope, you know, people are seem to getting on board with we need to change something. To the point, and I guess maybe if, if you're looking for some uh, bellwether as to whether, you know, we've actually started to embrace this. I mean, even the fact that, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, uh, has, has put a carbon tax into his policy. I, I know a lot of people in the party aren't crazy about it. They're not really pleased with it, but but it's there. I think they're starting to recognize now that, that carbon taxing has to be part of this. Uh, and, and I think even those governments that were fighting the federal government about this in court just a couple of years ago uh, seem to have come around right now and understood that that's not a battle worth fighting anymore. I agree, and I think it's and and the numbers argue that way, right? If you've got seventy five percent of your people saying they're willing to do it, I think it, that you know that ship has sailed. That you can argue that it's not a, a useful policy measure to help mitigate climate change. It's what you do with that money, right? That's the, that's the kind of sixty four thousand dollar question: Are we actually going to use this to help reduce carbon emissions? And the carbon tax, I think, is a way to do that, right? Because if you, if you see the cost at the pump is going up, you reduce your your use of your internal combustion engine vehicle and you solve uh, you reduce your costs and you help the environment at the same time so i think it's a real easy win i think the carbon tax uh, much much more so than you know some of the other programs uh, carbon taxes direct it hits your pocket you reduce your use of fossil fuels you save money and i think that's the way to drive these things to try to bring more people in under the tent, though, is it incumbent upon whatever government we're going to have after uh, September 20th to be more specific uh, so that we're not talking in the abstract again about, well, all that money from the carbon tax is going God knows where. Uh, show us exactly what programs are in place to try to mitigate the impact of, of climate change and, and environmental issues like that. I, I don't know that they've been as, as, as succinct in, in their policies as they probably could be. Well, I think, again, you know, politicians listen to the people and, and they listen to the polls. And again, you know, the, the, the poll we're, we're talking about says that people will buy a car, buy into a carbon tax if they see that it's being used to reduce the impact of climate change. So I think that's a really positive signal to governments that, yeah, you, you have to be, you know, you have to put your money where your mouth is and make sure that that funding is actually going to help the problem. And, and I think, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, politicians, I'm a bit cynical about politicians, uh, but I think they see that it's an issue for people and that becomes an issue for them, right? And I think for now, we have this, uh, you know, we have this wonderful ground, groundswell of support for things to help the climate. And uh, I agree, the governments have to be concrete in what they're actually doing. And uh, I mean, I haven't looked at the, at the, um, at the various parties, you know, standings, but I think that they need to, uh, once whoever gets in power needs to really make, make sure that they follow through and they are, in fact, using these funds to help reduce the impact of climate change. Just about out of time here, but uh, your point at the beginning of our conversation, I think, is, is an important part of this conversation, uh, is that industry is is leading the way in an awful lot of this, and that, and that was that was not the way it was 15 years ago. They were fighting this tooth and nail, uh, but when they come along and and they say this is what you need to do, even if the public's a little bit slow, I think what is it? Only about two or three percent of uh, of uh, vehicle sales these days are electric vehicles. That's certainly going to change, yeah. uh, and it's going to change because we're being told it has to. It's not necessarily uh, consumer driven, but it kind of reminds 
reminds me of the old uh, Henry Ford story, you know, that uh, somebody said, why did you invent the car? And he says, because I wanted to. He says, if I, if I did what people wanted, I would have invented a faster horse, but I gave them something else. Uh, and they, they, they embraced it. And I think that's what's happening with these, too, uh, because of the innovations that are going on. It's, it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how this all pans out, of course, uh, once we elect a government. And they, uh, then it's, okay, now put your money where your mouth is. And that's, uh, that's going to be the real test. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for this. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye now. Professor Kent Bohr, atmospheric physics professor at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting to watch the uh, the dynamic in this election campaign. Uh, All three major party leaders uh, were in Hamilton over the last couple of days. Uh, A couple of days ago, Jagmeet Singh and and Justin Trudeau both in town. Uh, Yesterday, Aaron O'Toole started the day in Bradford and ended up in Hamilton uh, in the evening. Uh, And uh, making some policy announcements and some, well, promises, I suppose. Uh, the conservative leader is pledging to put more money towards mental health, but he stopped short of saying just how he's going to ensure the provinces are going to use it for the types of programs that are needed. Global's Michael Couture uh, is here with the details. The conservative plan includes $1 billion over the next five years to boost Indigenous mental health and drug treatment programs across Canada. O'Toole says mental health is an important part of his overall health care plan. But when pressed on if he'd attach conditions to the money so that provinces will actually spend it on mental health services, O'Toole wasn't clear. Our front lines are tired. Canadians see a rise in mental health. We need to fix gaps in long-term care. I will partner with the provinces to help our country with that part of our recovery. O'Toole is spending the rest of the day in the Hamilton area, and with a number of incumbents in these ridings not running again, it's expected these ridings could be hotly contested. Michael Couture, Global News, Hamilton. So how do you shift and, and how do you sift, actually, through some of these promises as to what's legitimate? You know, at first blush, a lot of these things, hey, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then you do some analysis on it and you get a different perspective on this altogether. Well, thankfully, some folks are doing that uh, for us uh, to assist us as we go to make our decisions on Election Day in uh, just a couple of weeks right now. Uh, they are, uh, among others, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, who have issued some extensive paperwork and research about uh, the promises made by all of the major parties. Catherine Scott is a senior researcher for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Catherine, thank you for the time, and uh, thank you for the the analysis that you guys are doing through this uh, very confusing campaign. Uh, my pleasure, Bill, and thanks for reaching out. It's great to be with uh, you and your Hamilton audience today. A- and our London audience, too, on ah, CFPL, London, of course. I, I hasten to add, okay. Oh, there we go. Now, I know that, it is, as you guys, there's a, there's a team of you guys that are, are doing the analysis here, and, and I know that the, the focus of a lot of the stuff that you have written, Catherine, has to do uh, with what we call the care economy, uh, child care, long-term care, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is going to be one of the key elements of this, because they've all addressed this in one way, shape, or form, uh, all with some very different ideas, haven't they? That's right, and I think, and I'm, I'm quite pleased, actually, that we're having a discussion about care in Canada right now. I mean, if we've learned nothing over the last number of months is, you know, how central care is and, you know, deep-seated problems in child care, long-term care that really blew open this past year. And and as we've talked about, uh, a lot of the problems, and I think you, you can categorize an awful lot of the issues here as, as problems, not just challenges, uh, existed long before the pandemic. But the pandemic exacerbated them, or at least in some cases, just shone the light on them. And it's I'm, I'm gratified, too, to see it's, it's front and center right now and, and that they're paying attention to this uh, and addressing this. Now, as to whether or not these are effective policies that they're talking about, could be a, a totally different issue, couldn't it? 
Well, that's right. And I, I, I deep-seated problems, different opinions on how to address them. I mean, Canadians certainly are focusing in on issues of affordability, but obviously issues of quality of care are really important. We saw that in our long-term care sector, which had such, you know, uh, massive high levels of uh, illness and death, um, indeed highest levels in long-term care in the world in Ontario and Quebec um, this past year. Um, you know, we really need to get focused on uh, making reorganizing how we deliver care in the province and country. Let's talk a little bit about that. And, and we'll, we'll deal with the, the three main parties here, the NDP, the Conservatives, sure. and the Liberals. Uh, when we get into long-term care, there's, first of all, one issue that none of them seem to want to address, but it's the elephant in the room, and that's it's jurisdiction. You know, mm-hmm. health care is traditionally a provincial responsibility, yes. and the way the premiers have usually addressed this, Catherine, as you well know, is uh, just give us the money and we'll, we'll do what's best for what needs mm-hmm. to be done here. Uh, not necessarily the best method to do things. Like, there's a problem with accountability and things of this nature. Yes. So when, when the three main leaders are making promises like this, just how much can they actually do, and especially when it comes to long-term care? Well, we've seen this debate going on. Your your story referred to the announcement yesterday from uh, Mr. O'Toole on mental health, putting up, a, well, proposing a large increase in health care funding, untied money that would go to the provinces in the hope that they would spend on mental health. And, you know, that's echoed in the long-term care proposals that are on the table. We have, um, uh, you know, you're right, the federal government has a limited number of um, uh, tools at its disposal in health care. The Liberals and the Conservatives, for instance, are putting forward um, uh, monies to help with facility redevelopment, $3 billion. The Liberals actually have the largest offer on the table for long-term care. They're putting forward $9 billion in addition to the money in the budget. Um, the hope and the concern is that they will be negotiating a set of national standards and uh, hopefully creating an enforceable set of national standards that would be enshrined in legislation. That would be that would provide accountability and a tool for directing monies to ensuring there's higher, you know, better staffing ratios in long-term care. You know, the real the real issues. You know, the level of care, the people employed, and so forth. How are we going to boost quality? How are we going to shift away from private sector to um, um, for-profit uh, care models, which have proved to be so disastrous um, this last 18 months? Well, and we've seen that in Ontario specifically, of course, and, and, and you know the stats on this, certainly, Catherine. Uh, the majority of the houses that we're talking about, the long-term care facilities here, are private sector. They are for-profit businesses. Uh, sad, and, and the concern here is is if the government is going to allocate money, uh, take one of the examples that you just mentioned here, uh, say for upgrades to facilities, uh, are you subsidizing a for-profit organization that, you know, just a couple of them actually just gave huge bonuses to some of their boards of directors uh, during the middle of this pandemic and say, hey, you guys, are, you guys are doing a great job here. Uh, well, hey, wait a minute, maybe some of your money should go into some of these retrofits as opposed to taxpayer money. We have a long, you know, there's a long, large body of literature and studies across, you know, not only in Canada, around, you know, around the world that demonstrate the quality of care in for profit is much less uh, than uh, care delivered through a nonprofit or public sector. You know, if you just think about it, you know, you've got every dollar transferred, a good chunk of it's going off to shareholder value, and that's their primary. Um, objective. These com- these are large companies. They're interested in the real estate primarily. It's you know care of their vulnerable mm-hmm. seniors, and you know it's not the primary objective in those companies. So I really think shifting out and away for for-profit provide care providers is a real imperative. So setting national standards is important. The other thing we can do, and we see the Liberals have come forward, and certainly the NDP are looking at this, is trying to um, 
directly target monies to boost the wages of personal care, personal support workers and like, you know, these large, highly, you know, largely female, largely racialized women who have been delivering, you know, doing extraordinary work at, for very poor wages, typically in for profit and in home care, too. Let's not forget that. So directing money to boosting wages will go a long way to boosting care and improving working conditions, and that's really important. You've got to set the bar, and that's really that's it's important as the um, federal parties discussing that. Well, sure, and that that was one of the main problems we saw with the initial stages of the pandemic, wasn't it, Catherine? Where uh, a lot of these uh, PSWs were working sometimes two different jobs in two different facilities, and that was just to make ends meet. Uh, well, they were not yeah. being greedy. Uh, they just you know this is how you pay the rent and feed but the that's family. How it- structured bill, right? Like you can only get part-time work. I mean, it is egregious. Like, you know, that you would have someone wanting to work full-time, yet they couldn't. So you keep them at hours, reduced hours, so you're paying part-time, you're not paying the same benefits. You know, that in in order to keep your wage costs down. And, you know, you force it to precisely create the conditions which actually spread the virus. So you have a jurisdiction like D.C. that not only said you will only work at one jurisdiction, but they insured full-time hours. Yeah. So it's hugely important. That didn't happen in those provinces, including Ontario. It did not happen in Ontario. No, they, there was an edict, you may remember, from the Ford government that said, you know, we'd prefer that they didn't do, you know, I think the, the term they used was moonlighting. Uh, yeah. But they did nothing about it. I mean, you know, it's a four-year plan to increase wages. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Uh, yeah. Most of those people that are, are being impacted by this now may probably won't even be in that job in four years time Huge so yeah, yeah it's 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 just ridiculous what they're doing which is why i well our, our mike luke couture that was talking about the o'toole announcement yesterday uh you know asked about we, you know, are there going to be strings attached i think there have to be don't they to say look it has to be spent on this it has to be spent on wages it has to be spent on training it has to be spent on retrofitting these facilities you can't just give them the money and say go and have a good day and let them do what they want with it because we've already exactly. seen that the uh, governments especially here in ontario don't seem to have that commitment to say this is what needs to be done that's 100 percent true we've had decades of that approach have we not <laughs> i mean it's gone yeah. to the place we're in today we need a much more targeted approach which is an interesting contrast of the discussion just to segue over to child care you have a yeah. much more um you know certainly there um the ndp and the liberal plan around building out quality uh, you know a system of quality child care um, is precisely about targeting funds for expanding spaces and so forth, but also targeting money to uh, improving wages and working conditions of workers. Again, low, very poorly paid, often in tenuous positions, um, precisely, and putting money into training so that we're looking at, you know, we're boosting college training for early childhood educators and the like, building out, you know, uh, kindergarten. So that, you know, those are the types of um, uh, policy tools the federal government can use to assist system building across the provinces and territories. Why, this is a rhetorical question, but I I just want you to weigh in on this. Why do the Conservatives have this obsession with tax credits as opposed to just helping people out and and, and addressing it to certain programs? Well, you know, the whole issue, I mean, the debate around, you know, building public services versus cash for care, I mean, that's sort of a label that you would um, put on a variety of tax. You know, there is a real, um, there is a place for tax credits, uh, the Child can- Canada Child Benefit, for instance, is a very yep. effective policy tool that's been used and has been uh, proved, and it's done amazing things in terms of lifting kids out of poverty. It's income tested, right? It's targeted at low-income families, delivers the largest benefits. So there's absolutely a place for child benefits and um, tax credits. 
the Conservative Party this time around, I mean, is proposing to take an existing tax deduction, which really is a value only to primarily higher income families, and to turn that into a refundable credit. On its face, that is a tool that will help, um, that is better, is better than the child um, care expense deduction. Um, it will certainly assist families. It's tar- income targeted. We can get into the, the model. I'm not in love with the model. I think it's not as it's not particularly progressive. It will assist with the affordability of childcare, but it's a hill of beans to difference. If you have nothing, no childcare to purchase, if there are no services, that are wildly expensive. So if you have a credit that is worth roughly, um, you know, a thousand dollars a year, but your child your childcare bill is over ten grand. You know, you're still in a pretty difficult position in childcare. It's just this massive expense for so many families. Like I know in Hamilton, for instance, if you have an infant, you're paying over ten thousand. You're paying sorry, upwards of fourteen thousand dollars a year for that child. Uh, it's massive. So you know, I'm you know, there's a there's a place for ta- tax credits and the like. But you know, really, what we need to be doing is building affordable spaces that deliver high quality for all the kids that need this support. Well, and there, I, I, that's the big gap that I see with the announcement, especially the one that the Conservatives seem to be embracing with the uh, the, uh, the policy paper that, uh, that O'Toole put out a couple of weeks ago, I guess now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that, okay, that might offer might offer some financial relief to, to some families, some families, uh, but it's not creating new spaces. And, and the two issues I always hear from young families is affordability, certainly, but accessibility, too. In other words, they can't get into any of these places because there aren't enough. There's not enough staff there. They're not paid well. Uh, uh, you know, we need we need that industry to grow uh, to accommodate what's going on here, and, and I don't see that in their plan. Uh, the, no. the, the model, is, and I think you guys talked about this in your reporting, Catherine, uh, is Quebec. Uh, now, uh, mind you, they're heavily subsidized by the federal government. God bless them. Uh, but you, they, they've, they've already established a lot of the goals that these three parties are talking about. Uh, eight seventy five a day instead of $10 a day for child care. Uh, and it's actually a lot less expensive for families than what either one of the other two parties are proposing. That's absolutely true. I mean, Quebec's really an interesting example. I mean, 20 years ago, I mean, they've had this policy in place for 20 years. And, you know, have benefited. I mean, the thing about child care and building a child care services is obviously it facilitates uh, wi- largely women, uh, their, you know, pursuit of education, employment and the like, women who enter the labor force. We've seen a really significant rise of labor force participation rates of women in Quebec. Those women are paying taxes. So investing in child care is, in, is just a program that pays for itself you know, through the taxes that go back. You know, it's a, it's a really smart play, and Quebec has benefited hugely from that. Quebec also has, a cha- you know, a targeted tax credit scheme, to, you know, which was brought in precisely to encourage for-profit providers to set up shop, you know, in terms because they have, there's only so many 875 spots in the province. They're working to expand those um, spots. And, you know, it's interesting to compare the two. You know, certainly to get for a family to get an 8 uh, 75 is like three times more valuable to that family than to have access to that credit. And what happened during the pandemic? You know, enrollments tanked. The for-profit uh, parents in the for-profit sector, you know, drew, pulled their kids out in droves, really expensive, and desperately tried to get them into the you know the 875. So you've seen you know huge pressure. So Quebec. Uh, you know, their <laughs> Premier Legault has been more than pleased to negotiate with the Liberal government sure. on this new child care deal because he's just, you know, he's negotiated a $6 billion infusion that will expand 
their $875 a day system and, you know, hugely popular with families and um, in Quebec generally. Yeah, and uh, that's the other thing about Mr. O'Toole's announcement, that uh, the first thing he'll do, is, a la Stephen Harper, uh, is kill this uh, child care proposal that the yes, government's indeed. going, with, which a number of the premiers have already got to. And i got to figure, if, if, if that were to happen, we don't know what's going to happen on Election Day, uh, but if, if you know, the, the Conservatives were to win government and he goes to Premier Legault and says, we're going to scrap your plan, uh, this, uh, there's going to be sparks, let me put it this way, because uh, there's no way they're going to give that plan up. Well, no, and, you know, the... the Nor should know, they. It, no, well, absolutely, and I mean, it's negotiated in good faith, you know, <laughs> I know obviously it was a bit of a race this past summer, as although the Liberal government uh, was running around the country trying to lock down these agreements, and they obviously achieved that with eight provinces, and the Yukon have signed agreements which direct money to the expansion of nonprofit childcare and boosting wages and the like. You know, those provinces saw what happened, you know, the massive withdrawal of women from the labor market last year and, the, you know, the, the precarity and how important it is. You, you know, and here you have the federal government coming along saying, you know, we're going to boost our, our commitment to child care by, you know, upwards. We'll meet to 50 percent funding. Um, you know, that's a pretty enticing offer because these are important services. Families need and want affordable, high-quality childcare. It's really important for little kids, little people that don't have a good start, you know, don't have, you know, might have a number of barriers um, in front of them. So if we're putting in place the system like we do and we support public education, you know, it's really important to build out this um, system to, you know, play it forward. It's an well, in our future. And, and you're absolutely right. I know our time's kind of tight here, but the timing mm -hmm. of this is essential because uh, I know that they're all talking about No Tool and, and Trudeau and, and Singh have all talked about, uh, you know, employment numbers and things of this nature and, and bringing the economy back, even though uh, I think the, the Conservative plan is to say within 10 years he's going to balance the budget. Well, the Chief Budget Office has already said it's going to happen in four years. So that means he's going to stretch it out longer than it probably should. Uh, but a lot of it's going to happen as people come back to work, as, as you mentioned in, in your reporting, Catherine. Uh, you know, when stores start to open up and other businesses and, and you know, other industries start to open up, those women that were displaced because of the pandemic, uh, if they can't find childcare, they're not going back into the workforce. I mean, this is this is this is a, well, a very very important plank that, that, that they better get it right. No, it's no, it's just visceral right now. Do you even feel it right now, Bill? Like you can feel it in communities with schools in Ontario starting to open and the fear and set like they're worried about lockdown again they're worried they're going virtual they don't have access to care all of those people i mean they're worried for their kids they're worried for, but it will precipitate again we've seen this women will end up leaving typically lower income earners leaving the workforce and you know not just any women we have the most highly educated cohort of young women in this country's history we're talking about women in their 30s and 40s it's a massive economic hit uh, and, you know, we still need, we really need to pay attention to that and put in place systems that facilitate women's paid employment. And certainly that will fuel and ensure um, a just and fulsome recovery from the pandemic. Well, uh, this is a must-read. Uh, as you continue to work on this, of course, at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, to give people some perspective on uh, some of the promises that are being made by all of the parties that are going forward on this. Uh, Catherine, thanks again for the great work, and great to have you on the program today. Really enjoyed our talk.
My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Catherine Scott, Senior Researcher for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.